Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today's program is part of a series we're calling We Are MCU. It's a chance to get to know the organizers, leaders, and sustainers of MCU and learn about what motivates us to do the work. Today, my guest is Jeanette Mott-Oxford, an organizer and lead campaign strategist for MCU. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Kevin, for inviting me. So just give us a little background for you personally. Uh, where did you grow up? Are you originally from St. Louis? I'm not. Uh, I'm from uh, rural Southern Illinois. I grew up in Hardin County, which is on the southeast tip of the state. Uh, and I, I uh, always say uh, some parts of the year we were in the Ohio River because in the spring there would always be flooding and uh, Kentucky starts 10 feet out in the river. So maybe part of the time I lived in Kentucky, I'm not sure, because we, we had a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of spring flooding. Uh, in any case, it was a, a very rural county, uh, no town of over 500 there. Uh, and uh, my father was uh, employed in the fluorospar mines. Uh, fluorospar is a, a crystalline mineral that looks kind of like quartz. Uh, it's a dangerous profession. It was a non-union mine. Uh, my mom um, uh, was a, a, a farm wife who raised a big garden and canned a, you know, a lot of the food that we ate and was at it from the, before the sun went up to after the sun went down on all kinds of things that kept us going with very little money. So uh, she, uh, she, she would always say, I don't work when people asked her, you know, what do you do? They meant, are you employed? But she said, I don't work. And boy, did she work. So uh, I've always made a keen distinction in, in my work about employment versus work, uh, because a lot of people work who, who don't have income from their work. And we ought to value that work. It's important work. <laughs> yeah, I, I was unemployed uh, back in 2019. And that's something I learned very quickly. I think I was busier that year than I was when I held a, when I held, <laughs> held a full-time job. I was volunteering more for MCU, yeah, volunteering yeah. more for church. I helped someone move to Ohio or move from uh -huh. Ohio back. So yeah, yeah uh, work is, is not employment. I learned that. Too. Well, right. And parenting yeah. is such hard work. And, and why not value that work by identifying that it really is work? Uh, so I, I just think it's it's very important that, that we not show shallow, uh, you know, shallow lip service to work. A lot of legislators do that. You know, they'll say, well, get a job, you know, when people come and say they're poor. And often the answer is, well, I already have two, actually, you know, uh, work employment does not get you out of poverty. And we we don't show nearly the nearly the respect for workers that we ought to. So uh, you're relatively new to working specifically with MCU. What what's been your sort of your career path this far? I've, I've worked in public service uh, for about four decades now, and I've done that a lot of different ways. Uh, um, you know, early, early on, I, um, uh, you know, my first job when I was in high school is I did some hay hauling. Uh, and, uh, uh, then, uh, when I got out of, uh, you know, high school and into college, uh, I, I, uh, you know, had a work study job on campus 
Uh, when I graduated from junior college, I thought I would go on, you know, into my third year. Uh, I, I graduated community college with an associate degree. I went on to SIU for a bachelor's degree, and I, I did a, a, a variety of, of work uh, I, in the 12 years in between because I actually took 12 years off to work. I was a telephone operator. I sorted mail at the post office, uh, and then I went back uh, to, to, to school. And so I was a personal attendant for a woman with cerebral palsy uh, while I was a, a student in school. Uh, and then I, I worked for a place called Southern County's Action Movement. Uh, doing community organizing on rural poverty issues. Uh, then I moved to St. Louis uh, to, to go to, to Eden uh, and uh, have a Master of Divinity from Eden Theological Seminary. Uh, while there, I had field placements in a number of churches and also with Bread for the World, which is a wonderful place to learn about advocacy, uh, working on hunger issues. Uh, and then after that, uh, <laughs> over my sexual orientation, I had a little trouble getting ordained. And so I did not become a United Church of Christ pastor I instead had to find a, a job that was compatible with my values. I wound up being executive director of an anti-poverty group called Reform Organization of Welfare. I did that for nine years, and then I ran for office and lost. I was really glad that I did it. That was in 2000. Uh, then I worked uh, organizing uh, uh, on smoke-free issues that workers shouldn't have to live in, shouldn't have to work in environments where they breathe tobacco smoke all day long with its 70 or so carcinogens and over a hundred other toxic kind of chemicals. Uh, and then uh, ran for office again and won and became a state representative from 2005 to 2012. I left there to become executive director of Empower Missouri, which is a very old advocacy organization being founded in 1901 as the Missouri Conference on Charities and Corrections. I worked there for eight years and left there in December of 2020. Uh, and then I did some consulting on criminal justice issues for six months and then was hired uh, by Metropolitan Congregations United in late June of 2021. It sounds like this work is just in your blood. It um, is. You, I have a deep vocation around yeah. public policy. I, I really do. Um, to me, it's it's like it's like the biblical narrative around uh, the Exodus. The Hebrew children are led out of slavery uh, into uh, freedom. And then you have to figure out the nitty gritty of how do we live together? So there's the mosaic code uh, that, that shares things like, you know, when you harvest your crops, don't pick every little bit of it, leave some of it for the poor to come behind and glean so that they will have something too. Uh, you know, so um, the public policy is the rules that we shape that are about the common good. How do we make sure that we all have an opportunity to be healthy, uh, thrive, and, and grow. So talk a little bit more about how you see your faith playing a role in work and justice. A lot of people like to separate policy work and faith. So how do you see things coming together? And how does your faith inform what you do and how you do what you do? Uh, I'm not one to compartmentalize. Uh, my, my faith has been with me in, in everything that, that I have take, taken on. And uh, I am a person who begins each day with prayer, meditation, and journaling. Uh, and listen for how the Spirit is, is speaking to me on it each day about the text that I just read. Uh, so my faith fuels the work that I do. Uh, my faith informs um, the kind of issues that I will tackle, and I am mainly guided by a, a chapter of Hebrew Scripture, uh, Isaiah 58, uh, that uh, has a whole series of ifs and thens in it, uh, and that's how life works. The thens we get in life are about the ifs that we chose yesterday. It starts out um, basically uh, with this challenge saying, uh, shout out, don't hold back, 
um, you know, cry about this injustice that uh, you, you claim to be very religious people. You, you brag about how much you fast and how much you pray, but you oppress all your workers. And then God says, is this not the fast that I would choose? Uh, to share your bread with the hungry, uh, to, to bring the homeless poor into your own home and not hide yourself from your kin. And biblically, we're all kin. You know, I, I don't think there was literally a, a Garden of Eden with an Adam and Eve in it, but I do believe that we have common ancestors, that every one of us is related by, by some set of, of ancestors way back there. So everybody's our kin. So when somebody's in trouble, you don't hide yourself from your kin. If they knock on your door at midnight and say, help, you open the door. You don't lock the door, you know. So uh, so I, I just, I'm just so touched by that chapter. Uh, there was a book called Everything I Needed to Know in Life I Learned in Kindergarten. You may, you may right, remember, I remember that. that. I always yeah. say everything I needed to know in life I learned in Isaiah 58. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, so if that chapter says... If we choose to share our bread with the hungry, and if we see that homeless people are sheltered, uh, if we remove the pointing of the finger at others uh, and the speaking of evil at, at others, uh, if we remove those things, uh, if we uh, work to let the oppressed go free, then some things are going to happen, it says. And those things are, uh, are that, that it will be as if the sun uh, dawns, uh, uh, you will be like a watered garden. Uh, your bones will be strong. You will be called restorers uh, of the breach or repairs of the breach and restorers of streets fit to live in. Uh, so there are these promises that if you do these things, then there are these benefits to society. Then you will have conditions worth living in. And I think that's the way life works is, is when, when our priorities are, let's make taxes just as low as we can on the wealthiest people among us, then there will be consequences. And those consequences are things like understaffing that um, that we won't have. You know, I just had a call from a friend living with mental illness telling me that uh, she's getting the runaround. She's been on Medicaid for years and she got a letter that has scared her to death as to whether she's going to get cut off. She can't find anybody at the welfare office uh, to help her because they've, you know, they've done away with customer service for the most part there. Uh, everything's like online. She doesn't have a computer. Uh, and uh, you just you just really can't find people to help you that easily these days. Um, so she's scared to death, and I've I've suggested uh, a particular caseworker that she works with in a program to try to help her solve her her problem. Um, so there will be consequences to our choices, and if uh, if we focus on um, no regulations on uh, water and air quality, because um, we wouldn't want to cause any business to make less profits than they could if they're allowed to pollute freely. Uh, if we focus on uh, low, lowest taxes as possible on the wealthiest among us, there are consequences for society, society about those choices. If we want to pay workers as little as we can, not enough for them to secure housing and food uh, and to, to live in safe and stable conditions, there will be consequences. Uh, so it's really important that we get the ifs right if we want to live a, a, a life that is pleasant and peaceful uh, and healthy. Uh, so I'm, I'm really informed by that. And I, I'm especially touched by a phrase that I've learned over the last few months, which is being, a, being an ancestor of a better future. Uh, and that's what I believe my work at uh, MCU is about, is, is, is helping me be an ancestor of a better future and to work with a bunch of other uh, staff and leaders uh, who are doing the same thing, becoming ancestors of a better future.
That's a beautiful sen- sentiment. Um, it really connects us to generations to come. Uh, two things that you said about your history. You are an, an ordained minister. I am not. Or I not never ordained. did get ordained. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. You completed seminary and I did. Grad- graduated from seminary. Uh-huh. And you served in the Missouri State House. I did and, for eight years, yes. You you run into your um, fellow legislators uh, who have a different view on things, and specifically when it comes to issues around faith and religion. And and how how did you navigate sort of on in Jefferson City um, with with those attitudes uh, still um, in the state house and still uh, putting limits on uh, whether it be telling the truth in our public schools or uh, allowing transgender children to be who they are, mm-hmm. um, that those arguments are coming from a religious background. So mm-hmm. h- how do you work in that space um, it, when you were in that position? Well, fortunately, I grew up with that. That's the prevailing religious sentiment from our General Assembly as my religious training. And therefore, I understand that way of thinking. And I know that I um, actually was very concerned about my neighbor, that I was concerned about the the soul, uh, the health of the souls of the people around me, uh, what their eternal destination would be, uh, because I was very, um, you know, locked into a particular way of thinking at that time. So uh, I was sincere and I was loving, and I assume that they may be as well. Uh, And um, even if I disagree with them about which issues that we should be focusing on and what we should do about them, Uh, I tried to always treat people with respect and hear them. And I also focused a lot on uh, telling stories uh, about real people that I knew uh, or introducing legislators to those people whenever I could so that so that they could embody their issue so that their stories would be centered in the in the lawmaking that we were doing. Uh, And that that works better than a bunch of ideological dialogue and, you know, just going down a set of talking points. And especially um, my particular caucus when I served was big on using a lot of, you know, kind of collegiate sounding language. And they like to use a lot of data uh, and they like to use a lot of highfalutin research kind of words. And I value research. I believe in being uh, evidence driven and and public policy. But (laughs) that's not what what convinces anybody. Uh, It really is forming heart connections with people. So uh, when we were debating whether we were going to cut people off of Medicaid, I said, this this bill would be dangerous to my friend Larry, you know, and uh, Larry has um, uh, depression and um, many people don't understand depression. They think that somehow you can just grab somebody who's depressed and shake them by their shoulders and say, snap out of it and they'll be just fine. And that's not how life really works. You know, depression takes all of your energy and some days Larry can do some things and other days Larry can barely get out of bed. And Larry doesn't get to control that because depression really, you know, mental health issues are very real. They are real issues. And he can't work a full-time job. He could work a part-time job if we shaped, if we uh, allowed for flexible workplaces where, uh, you know, where people with his particular condition could work part-time and, and, and make it and not lose their access to health care, that could work for Larry. But that's not what we're doing in this bill. This bill makes it dangerous for Larry and he might lose his health care. And, and if, if he is not as healthy, we all suffer for that. And I would, I would you know, try to tell stories about real people that I, that I knew. And I thought that that worked a lot better than, uh, than, than using a lot of, of um, you know, term paper sounding language. 
I'm going to ask a very similar question in that that same role. You also have uh, a history of being an activist, and mm-hmm. just like uh, uh, Representative Cory Bush is now in the highest uh, place in the in in the country, but she's taking that activism to that place. There's that push and pull between compromise and 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 stick, standing your ground and and mm-hmm. fighting for what you believe in. So how do you how did you navigate that tightrope? Oh, that was um, kind of hard uh, because you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful with your language uh, to not not insult, you know, your your workmates. Um, uh, I don't believe in in that kind of language anyway. But you know, sometimes in the midst of debate, you really want to say, how can you believe something like that? You know, you just, <laughs> you just really want to kind of go off on somebody. For one thing, when, when people did say things like there, there was a legislator who suggested that we shouldn't give people welfare because like animals at the zoo, they would become dependent. I found that language very offensive. So I made an appointment to see him privately and to let him know how disappointed I was by his language. And we had a good long talk about it. So that was one thing was to, to take points of pain behind closed doors. That's an important thing to do. There's a shallow kind of liberalism that, that seeks peace uh, with, without kind of upholding your principles. So uh, I, I did have a lot of private meetings with people was one thing that I did. But um, when it comes to the, the more, let's say, fiery kind of confrontations about things that we really should be angry about and not settle I was helped in my work, which was more diplomatic, quiet kind of work, by people who really would be forceful and loud in their opposition uh, or their uh, opposition against or their advocacy for certain kinds of social justice principles. If no one is pushing for those in in a very visible and very loud way, it is hard to make progress uh, in the role of legislator. Uh, My very first State of the Union address that I attended was in 1992, John Ashcroft was the governor, and he was making his final uh, his final uh, speech. Uh, that was the height of the AIDS crisis, uh, the 1990s, and the group called ACT UP decided to show up for his speech, and it managed to get on into the galleries. Uh, and periodically during his speech, somebody from ACT UP would stand up and yell, "ACT UP, fight back!" And the highway patrol officers would immediately go get that person who was being loud and violating the rules of the house. The rules of the house say you don't behave that way and take that person out. And I guess they probably got arrested and ticketed or uh, tried um, about their behavior. For all I know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what happened to them, um, but they were taken out and, and the event went on. Well, some would say oh, they didn't accomplish much. They just got drug out. But what happened is that day. <laughs> That very same day, there was this nice Presbyterian couple from Kirkwood there, Doug and Peg Atkins, lovely couple. He graduated from West Point. Uh, She'd been an occupational therapist at Washington University, uh, and their son had died of AIDS. And they, um, you know, were a distinguished older couple, you know, dressed um, conservatively. And they were going around trying to talk to people about their son, Tom's death and what needed to be done about AIDS. They joined an interfaith AIDS task force. Uh, They didn't want their son's death to be in vain and they were going to organize around it. And so everybody wanted to talk to Peg and Doug. They did a lot of good that day. People didn't want to talk to the loud, rowdy protesters. They were they were scary people. But here came, you know, (laughs) 
uh, Doug and Peg, and they looked very accessible and they didn't look very frightening at all. And everybody was curious about this topic because this loud and rowdy thing had happened, you know? Uh, and so Peg and Doug had so many important conversations that day uh, because somebody did get the attention of the public with their outcries. Uh, so I, I really always appreciate those that, that are um, very demanding in their, their speech because uh, often society won't pay attention until uh, people are, are making a very loud and vigorous protest. So let's turn to uh, your work here at MCU right now. Um, like you said, you, you've joined this past year. Uh, tell us about your role and, and what are your goals and what you're doing? Sure. Well, um, I work with all of our, our teams um, to, to look for uh, what kind of policy victories we might pursue um, given what we are hearing uh, from, from personally impacted people. So uh, our environmental justice team uh, has been doing door-to-door canvassing where, where they listen to folks and are discovering that you know, there are some kind of common themes uh, around issues like air quality, uh, illegal dumping, uh, vacant properties that are dangerous and that harm the health of neighborhoods. Uh, and then we have the Break the Pipeline team that's been working with, with uh, parents and, and families where a juvenile has uh, interacted with the criminal justice system in some way. And um, they're you know, training folks in, in how to do participatory defense uh, with, with their, their kids. And, and they're working to, to build a court system that, that takes brain science into account around what's different about juveniles' brains and adult brains. And how do we get good out- outcomes with kids and help them change, change their lives? How do we heal the trauma that's uh, been there for so many children uh, so that futures can be better. Um, so those folks are working. And then we have this integrated voter engagement team that's that's working on uh, how do we uh, get people to take their responsibility in democracy seriously so that instead of being infrequent voters, they become informed and frequent voters. So we have all of that going on. So I'm a resource to all of those teams around, uh, you know, how, how do we choose an issue that can be won? Are the, are the conditions right just now for us to get somewhere with this? How much power do we need to build before, before we can move this forward? Who are the right targets uh, on this issue? Uh, you know, we were looking at an issue yesterday with the Break the Pipeline team, and uh, suddenly I realized that they were talking about a state-funded program, even though it's, it's, it's a county program. So I was wanting to go see the county council about it, and then it was like, oh, the money comes from the General Assembly. Well, that changes things, you know. Right. So uh, I, I help people figure out um, what we, what you call the power analysis. Who is it that we have to touch and how do we have to touch them if we're going to get something done about it? Uh, and I, I certainly can't make all that happen. I just help people analyze it a bit and then, um, you know, work, work with our organizers uh, to uh, get information to our leaders and to recruit more leaders in. Uh, in order to, um, to to build the necessary power that we need to have victories on these things that can improve the quality of our lives. So that's a lot of what I've been doing. Uh, I've been helping resource a series of in-district meetings with elected officials uh, to train people to, to go have those in-district meetings. And then now I'm gathering the, the, the data from those meetings. What did the, the elected officials tell you? What did they tell you were the real opportunities and threats that are coming up in the next year? Uh, where 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 might we uh, expend resources? What are their the, those elected officials' priorities? What are they going to try to win? Do any of those align with our priorities? Uh, telling us that oh well, here's a place we may find some support in the legislature should we want to elevate this this issue uh, at this time. 
Uh, and then we'll be having an issues summit about uh, about you know the data from those in district meetings. And uh, because there are these things called elections where where the the personnel change, uh, this won't be the only issue summit we ever have. We'll we'll have to continue to have in district meetings and uh, gather information, build relationships with elected officials, uh, and move forward to um, adjust the times and uh, and and changes that are out there uh, in the political landscape. So. It, it's easy to get overwhelmed with all the issues that we're we're trying to make progress on. What gives mm-hmm. you hope? What motivates you? What keeps you engaged? Well, strangely enough, what gives me hope is the fact that where there is no justice, there will be no peace, uh, and that I've I've seen that time and time again. And um, uh, the the fact that that uh, uh, that some people do continue to 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 invest in the struggle uh, gives me hope. Um, I, uh, I'm a student, uh, you know, of, of history and of, of places where, where struggle mattered. Uh, I often say on days where I'm tempted to be an atheist, um, I think about, uh, the marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and whatever the power was that gave them the courage to march across that bridge. That's what I believe in. Um, so, um, I, uh, what gives me hope is remembering the courage of people that have gone before me. Uh, who have um, fought to make the world a better place, uh, and and the people that I meet that that tell me their stories. Uh, um, my my life is full of folks with whom I have witnessed a personal transformation. You know, people who lived in domestic violence who got out, people who lived in addiction and got out, uh, people who um, were crushed by childhood abuse and thought that they. Um, they had no right to uh, to be visible in our world, basically, uh, who who found their voice and found their power and are doing amazing work to change our world. And I'm just so blessed by those relationships. So that's what gives me hope. What's your favorite thing about working in MCU? Um, and then translate that to listeners or are thinking about uh, becoming involved or uh, taking action or becoming a sustainer. Why should they do that? Well, there's two things I like really working about MCU. And, and one is that we have so many people as organizers that really have been impacted by the issues that they're organizing on. And I think it's so important to listen to, to those who have uh, experienced, you know, an issue like, you know, say if you're organizing on substandard housing issues and you've lived in substandard housing, you have a kind of expertise that is just very, very valuable. And we, you know, we have folks organizing who've experienced, uh, you know, challenges with the criminal justice system on behalf of their children. We, we have folks who've, who've, whose kids have experienced lead poisoning. Um, their expertise as, uh, uh, as personally impacted people is so incredibly uh, value, valued. And then the other thing I like is that people don't roll their eyes when I speak in <laughs> faith language uh, because faith language is important to me. So uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying having, having a chance to, to uh, express my faith um, uh, in, the, in the workplace. That's, uh, that's um, a wonderfully refreshing uh, thing. Uh, but I, I love the ability to speak freely about my faith on the job. Thank you very much, Jeanette Mott-Oxford, organizer and lead campaign strategist for MCU. If you are ready to join us in this work for justice in the St. Louis area, contact us at 314-367-3484 or you can email us at office at mcustl.com. But if you want to learn more about us and go to our website, 
That website is mcustlewis.org. So two different addresses there. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. 